With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today's episode 296. It's titled, Why Do Negative Prices Exist? Last week, the price of the May 2020 West Texas Intermediate Crude Oil Futures Contract, known as WTI, fell to as low as negative $37 per contract. That means the holder who was long oil, was willing to pay to exit the contract. CNBC markets reporter Pippa Stevens wrote, On Monday, for the first time on record, West Texas Intermediate, the U.S. oil benchmark, plunged below zero and into negative territory. Before Monday, many thought this was impossible. Maybe, just maybe, it could drop to zero, effectively erasing all value. But negative territory seemed unimaginable not least because it's hard even to wrap one's mind around it. Pay someone to take your oil? In this episode, we're going to see why oil prices went negative. We'll also look at other examples of negative prices and why they exist and what we can learn from them. The WTI futures contract has a physical settlement, which means whoever holds the contract when it expires receives a barrel of oil. The contract settles in Cushing, Oklahoma. That's where that barrel of of oil is delivered. If you own the contract, that's where you're going to get your oil, or at least arrange for somebody to store it for you. U.S. crude inventories are near an all-time record high. And in Cushing, Oklahoma, 70% of the storage capacity was full as of mid-April. And a Reuters article suggested that most of the available space is already leased out. There's nowhere to put that oil that is being received as part of this future contract settlement. Now, the May oil futures contract has since expired. And now the June oil futures contract is the front month contract that will expire in the third week of May. Yesterday, the June contract fell 25 percent to just under $13. The United States oil ETF, USO, fell 15%. It has lost 83% year-to-date. Leveraged exchange-traded funds tied to oil have shut down. They lost all the money. Products by Wisdom Tree, UBS, and Velocity Shares, which is owned by Janus. Jim Cramer said, There are times in life where people know that there's an instrument that is faulty. And they can shoot against that instrument and bury these people. There is this financial problem. People who are buying the USO, the United States Oil Energy ETF, they are financial people. So if you're a real person or you're a large contractor, a large player, they can wipe out the USO. And I think that's been what's going on. It's not a conspiracy. It's a reality. When you have an organization that can't take delivery, 
Well, you should crush that organization every time. And that's what probably happened. Who are these people that are getting crushed that own USO? Well, some of them are retail investors, but most are institutional investors. John Hyland, he's now retired, but he was the former investment officer of the United States Commodity Fund, which manages USO. He pointed out that 80% of USO shares are held by non-retail investors, hedge funds. They include Energy Trading Desk and other professional players. The purpose of this ETF was to allow investors to get exposure to the front-month contract of oil. At the end of 2019, it had $1.2 billion under management. And the vast majority of its investment at the end of December was in the February WTI crude oil futures contract that expired in January. Every month, this ETF would sell that contract right before it expired and then buy the next contract. In order to make money, it needed to sell that contract for a higher price than what it paid for it. Right now, when you look at the price of West Texas Intermediate Crude Futures Contract, there is a steep premium as you go further out. For example, right now, the June contract is selling for $12.93. The July contract is 41% higher at $18.26. The October contract is $25. As investors, if we're trying to invest in oil, you let's say you want to buy that October contract. By October, the price of oil needs to be above $25 a barrel not negative $37. This situation is called a super contango when you have such a steeply rising futures curves where the futures price are, in this case, the October futures contract is double the June contract. And it is the result of a huge supply-demand imbalance. With the economy being shut down in the U.S. and around the world, airlines are running at 90% below their capacity. People are working from home. There's less driving going on. The demand for oil has plummeted, yet the supply has continued. What USO is trying to do to sort of stem the bleeding is they announced this week that over the next three days, so yesterday, today, Tuesday, April 28th, and Wednesday, April 29th, when this episode is released, that they're selling that June contract and they're going to be buying these other contracts. So 30% will be in the July contract, 15% in the August, 15% in September, and then some in later contracts. That means they're selling an oil contract for $12 and then buying contracts that are worth $18 to $25 or more. It's moving away from its stated goal of the ETF to track the short-term price or the near-term price of oil. Despite its woes, USO has $3.6 billion under management, up from $1 billion at the beginning of the year, and that's including the 83% loss. Who are all these investors? Well, I learned something this week that I never knew, that institutional investors, hedge funds that want to short an ETF they can get an authorized participant that is authorized to create and redeem shares of ETFs on behalf of the sponsor to create 
new shares that can then be shorted. When you short a stock or an ETF, you borrow the shares. So you have to get the shares from somewhere. And if there's not enough shares, then they can be created by an authorized participant. Here's how John Hyland, former investment officer of the United States Commodities Fund, described this process. He said, a hedge fund wants to borrow 10 million shares to short, and it's easier and quicker for Merrill Lynch or whoever to just create them. The shares now belong to Merrill. Merrill will hedge their shares by being short the futures and lend the shares to the hedge fund for the short. Highland estimated that 90% or more of the short positions in USO involves professional traders. So shares created by authorized participants, such as Merrill Lynch, that can be shorted. And then Merrill is protected because USO owns oil futures and Merrill just goes short oil futures. So they're not exposed. And then the hedge fund is able to short the ETF. It's estimated that 15.5% of the outstanding shares of USO are being shorted. That process is called create to lend activity. So they create the ETF in order to lend it out. It's also known as a synthetic short. I saw one paper where they described how a hedge fund that wanted to borrow a particular stock to short that was very difficult to get. If a stock is hard to borrow, the cost to borrow can get quite high. And so this particular hedge fund, they shorted the ETF, a stock ETF that had their particular holding, and then they went long or bought all the other stocks in that ETF, except for the one they were trying to short. It's amazing that they would do that, but that's a synthetic short. So that's what's going on with USO. It's in a a very, very difficult situation because of this huge supply demand imbalance that has created the super contango that is causing USO to lose money whenever they roll over the contract because they have to sell when the contract expires because they can't take delivery. The negative price is due to a storage issue. The need to store what you buy. There was a fascinating article this past week by Robin Harding in the Financial Times. The title was, Oil is not the only negative price coming to you. And the subtitle is, Minus prices are not uncommon, even if they suggest infinite losses and generate horror. This storage problem is one example of a negative price. The need to store what you buy. Or Some things you just don't want it at all. And because it costs money to dispose of it, it essentially has a negative price. We have bought houses in the past or land, farmland, where there was stuff on the property or in the house that we just, we didn't want. Maybe it had value, but we told the owner, the seller, you got to get rid of it or we're not going to close. And from the seller's perspective, maybe they don't want it. And so maybe that item has value, but because of the need to dispose of it, to get rid of it, to move it, to transport it, it has a negative price. Another example that Harding points out is electricity. You can't really store electricity. It's costly and time-consuming to shut down a power plant, a coal plant, or nuclear plant. How do you shut down a solar plant? And if there's excess electricity, 
because the sun is shining, there's just not there's not the demand. Oftentimes, these power generators they they will pay to get rid of it because of the excess supply, and they they got to get rid of it, so they pay somebody to take it because it's not in that case it's not easy to store. I ran across this recently. We have some solar panels at our cabin. The utility that we buy from it's a cooperative, Fall River Electric. They recently changed the way they do what's known as net metering. With our solar panels, and most people that own solar panels, you have the option, if your solar panels create more power than you actually need, you can push that excess power onto the grid and get paid for it. So instead of being excess power like a power plant or paying somebody to take it, in this case, the utility is paying to take on this power. But they've been paying 7.4 cents per kilowatt, a retail price. And going back and forth in emails with the director, he pointed out that their wholesale cost is 3.8 cents. So they're paying in excess, which means those members that don't have solar panels are essentially subsidizing people like us that do. And the way that Fall River worked is you could bank your excess power. So you got these credits at 7.4 cents per kilowatt, many of which were generated in the summer when there's more sunlight. And then you could use those in the winter when you weren't generating enough power and perhaps are using more power for to heat your house. They changed the rules to where you have to use your excess balance every month. And at first I was kind of upset, but then you know, going back and forth between the director and some of the board members, like, well, yeah, that makes sense. And I'm actually grateful that they're willing to at least pay the retail rate. Director pointed out that nationally, the trend is to reconcile net metering instantaneously. So look at what the power price is and pay wholesale rates. And if there's too much power, then not perhaps not buy it at all or pay a much lower rate. But electricity and power is another example of where prices can go negative because there's too much of it and they have to get rid of it. Negative interest rates, something we discussed in episode 264 of this show, what happens when interest rates turn negative. We discussed a savings glut. There are many, many people that want to save in a safe manner. FDIC insurance, depository insurance for banks, there's a $250,000 limit. If you as an institution want to hold cash, you might be willing to buy a government bond that has a negative yield. Pay to store your money in something safe. Maybe at some point we'll get to where banks will charge money to store it because there's a cost to storing cash in your house. You have to buy a safe, possibility of theft. It's hard to do very large transactions, millions of dollars using cash. And if there is a greater demand to save, that can lead to negative interest rates like we've seen throughout the world. Before we continue, let me pause here and share some words from this week's sponsors. Sometimes it's just nice to sit back, relax, maybe even take a nap. That's not what you want your money to be doing. You want it to be working hard for you, earning interest, generating returns. That's where the Betterment Automated Investing and Savings app can help. Betterment's technology gives you advanced tools that are built to help you maximize returns. They have diversified portfolios of low-cost ETFs that have been constructed by experts. 
high-yield cash accounts where your money can earn 11 times the national average, and automated investing technology like automated rebalancing. These tools can help you reach your savings and investing goals. Betterment is a fiduciary. That means it's their job to act in your best interest. They will never recommend an investment or give you guidance unless they believe it will help you reach your financial goals. So visit Betterment.com to get started. Learn more about the high-yield cash accounts at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk, performance not guaranteed, cash reserves offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. I know in our business, having the right candidates for the job is critical to keep our business running smoothly. Now, LinkedIn isn't just another job board. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. It gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. LinkedIn does all that while making the process easy and intuitive. Hiring is easy when you have that many quality candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier and quicker. So post your job for free at linkedin.com slash David. That's linkedin.com slash David to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Robin Harding gives another reason for negative prices, where there's a liability attached to an asset. Example of contaminated land. The cleanup cost of the land means that an entity might pay someone to take this land off them. We gave the example when BMW sold the British car company Rover in the year 2000. It provided a dowry of hundreds of millions of pounds to the buyer because of the state of the business, because the ongoing cost of the business and the price needed to reflect the future liability or cost related to that. There's other things that maybe have value. Re- plastic that we recycle, recycling things, theoretically can have some value. But I know we did for many years and continue to do. We pay someone to pick up that curbside recycling. We discussed in episode 28, the biggest market crash is recyclables. And one of the challenges with this pandemic and the economic shutdown is the market for recyclables has plummeted. I saw a report that in Malaysia, Vietnam, and India, where many of these recycling plants are, only about 30% of recycling plants are still operating. And they're running at 50% capacity. And then when you look for the end uses of much of this plastic, it's used in textiles, automotive, pipe markets. Susan Robinson, she's the Senior Director of Sustainability and Policy at Waste Management, said, since no one is buying carpets or cars right now, these industries are closing down and material recycling facilities are having a hard time selling and moving some of their bottles and cans. Now, as an end consumer, we're paying somebody to take away this recycling, but the recyclers are struggling right now because nobody wants the plastic. Now, I don't think they're paying people to take the plastic yet, but perhaps we'll get there. A third scenario where prices could be negative 
is there's something that a buyer would typically pay for. But as part of the transaction, the seller is getting something else of value from the buyer. So the seller's willing to pay the buyer. Harding gives the example of a bike sharing network where it might pay customers to ride bikes from the suburbs back to the city center. Whereas typically the consumer would pay to ride the bike. In this case, the bike sharing plan might pay the consumer to ride the bike from the suburbs because there's more demand for the bikes in the city center. The bike rider gets paid to ride the bike. It's like having a negative price. Disposable razors often sent to individuals for free. It costs the company money to send that razor, but they do it because they will benefit in the future as consumers, hopefully by replacement blades. Another example is where there's a benefit. It's just, this is a much more complicated one, but I've mentioned in it before. One reason brokers are no longer charging for commissions is they actually get paid to send trades to execution services, such as Citadel Execution Services. will pay retail brokers like Robinhood, Fidelity, and TD Ameritrade to send trades to them. Citadel is providing a service, but it's paying its customers for the privilege of providing the service. And the reason why is that as a market maker, it can combine orders for greater volume to cover its fixed infrastructure cost and to get a predictable stream of orders to match as a market maker, to have liquidity. They provide liquidity and they're better able to manage their order book and generate a profit by being willing to pay retail brokerages for that order flow. And the investor gets better execution than they might otherwise. What are some takeaways or lessons we can learn about negative prices? Well, first is a recognition that that the price of assets can go negative or at least fall sharply if there is too much supply and there is a cost to continuing to hold onto the asset like we saw with oil futures. When there's a highly motivated seller that perhaps is leveraged and just wants to get out of their financial commitment. One of the questions that we should always ask whenever we're considering buying something, is what is the ongoing cost or commitment beyond the initial price paid? I wonder how many individuals have bought houses to rent on Airbnb. And with people not traveling, those houses aren't being as rented as much. And there's still a mortgage payment to be made. The prices won't go negative of houses, but it certainly will potentially put some downward price pressure. We bought a timeshare through Marriott many years ago that I've discussed. Well, there's an ongoing maintenance fee commitment to that. And that ongoing commitment is one reason the resale value on timeshares is quite low, usually below what the individual paid for it. Many assets have an ongoing maintenance cost, a storage cost, a just the mental burden. Sometimes the cost is just knowing we own it and have to think about it and care for it. There's a cost. Sometimes the cost is worth it. Let's take a second home as an example. There's a cost to the ongoing maintenance of that second home. But the benefit 
in many cases, for some individuals, outweighs the cost. There's the optionality, the ability to go and stay there whenever you want. When negotiating, we should always consider, are there, are there costs and benefits apart from the price that would influence the price or help us in negotiating? I took a class, negotiating class when I first got into the leasing business. Turns out most of our negotiation with, was with our own sales reps. But one of the things I remember is sort of all these non-price negotiating items that could be added to additional benefits that you could negotiate for. Or are there additional ongoing costs that will allow you to negotiate a lower initial price? The second lesson is the importance of understanding what you own. What is it? That's the first question in my book, Money for the Rest of Us, 10 Questions to Master Successful Investing. We need to be able to explain how an investment works. The number of users on the Robinhood app that held the U.S. oil ETF doubled from April 17th, when USO closed at $4.21, to the next Tuesday, when it closed at $2.81. 33% decline. I suspect many of those users thought they were buying a barrel of oil and didn't realize they were buying into a super contango situation where USO is having to dump front-month contracts and then buy more expensive later month contracts. Since that Tuesday, when the number of users from Robinhood doubled that own USO, the USO ETF has fallen another 25%, including the 15% decline yesterday. So it's important to be able to, to explain in simple terms to a friend or family member, what is it that we owned? How does it work? How does it make money? What's the expected return? What is the risk, the potential harm? I go through those questions in my book that help us answer what it is. One of the things that I, I'm doing on the Money for the Rest of Us website for free is provide guides to help individual investors better understand specific asset classes. I mentioned this last week. There's a new guide on investing in tips and iShares. This week, I have a new guide on how to invest in gold and the different ways to invest in gold. There's a guide on how to invest in closed-end funds, and the next one will be on how to invest in real estate investment trusts. So comprehensive guides to help us understand what is it that we own before we invest. That's so critical. So we're not caught off guard by a situation that could lead to negative prices like we saw with oil in the past few weeks. That's episode 296. You can get show notes and links to this episode along with those guides I mentioned at moneyfortherestofus.com. While you're there, please sign up for my free weekly insider's guide. It's, the, it's an email I send out each Wednesday when I release an episode that contains an essay on money investing in the economy, some of the best writing I do each week, just your inbox. You can sign up for that at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I've not considered your specific risk situation. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week. <laughs>